thing that goes by. Another player I strongly touted goes down, not practicing, not playing, rehabbing some injury. Just in the last 24 hours, we have Danny Woodhead with a hamstring strain and CJ Procise with a reported groin strain. I mean, right? If he's a satellite back plus that I've been hoarding, he is injured right now. Duke Johnson hurt his shoulder. Procise groin. Of course, we had Ty Montgomery's mysterious leg ailment. Devontae Booker, broken wrist. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. I'm just waiting for the D'Angelo Henderson injury to happen, for the Jeremy Macklin injury to happen, for the Marlon Mack injury to happen. Oh, no. Chris Godwin, protect these people from me. This has to be Cooper Cup's doing. It has to be because it's creepy at this point. It's the fantasy mansion voodoo doll, the mansion curse. Cooper Cup is the white angel of death. I am the white werewolf of death. The vitriol I directed at Cooper Cup has been boomeranged back at me tenfold in the form of great fantasy values writhing on the ground during training camp and preseason. <laughs> Jamison Crowder just returned to practice after straining a hamstring. I mean, go down the list. If I like the player, he's probably hurt. And the one player that is healthy, amazingly, Michael Campanaro, right? Of all the players that I've touted strongly, the one healthy guy is Michael Campanaro. Because, of course, that's how it works. Of course, it's Michael Campanaro. <laughs> I am freaked out by this. I am. We're joking around. I am pretending to be spooked, but I am getting nervous that I'm having some negative impact on these players. I'm not a superstitious person, but if one more player gets hurt on my must-have list, then, well, well, <laughs> it's just... Forget it! Melvin Gordon gets hurt in the next week. I quit. You won't hear from me. You'll go to your podcast. You'll click download and nothing will appear. No new shows. I may have to do that for the good of the players that we all love because clearly I'm the problem here. It's not the strength and conditioning. It's not the flexibility. It's not the hydration of the players. It's me. I'm the one paying a penance for blaspheming against Cooper Cup, who is having the most spectacular preseason. <laughs> The only wide receiver having a better preseason is Jeff Janis, but he doesn't count, right? You're allowed to get excited about the Cooper Cup preseason, not about the Jeff Janis preseason. That's also maddening. And I'm going to bring on my guest, Sean Siegel from Rotoviz, and ask him why the Jeff Janis preseason domination doesn't move the needle. Because if that's true, does preseason even matter? Or does preseason matter just not when it comes to Jeff Janis? Or does preseason matter and Jeff Janis's preseason production matters, in which case we can expect Mount Janus to erupt at some point again soon. The last time we saw the Janus eruption, 2015 playoffs, Packers, Cardinals. I would like to see it again in my lifetime. That would make me happy. I'm also happy to have found this FF draft prep tool because my friend Dave Cabin was developing this in secret. He writes for Rotoviz 
and went on a personal crusade to get people drafting with an underlying strategy and stop going after best player available or the player with the highest projection. And that's something we're going to spend some time talking to Sean Siegel about today. The FF Draft Prep tool is phenomenal because it allows you to create a team while following specific roster construction precepts. And it capitalizes on a number of concepts that we frequently talk about on this show. Position scarcity, game theory, and it allows you to easily track the quality of available supply against the demand in your draft. The tool will help you identify which positions to target in which rounds based on the construction of your team versus your league mates. So go to ffdraftprep.com. That's ffdraftprep.com and get started. It's free. So check it out. It will revolutionize how you draft. And many of you want to know my preferred strategy for auction leagues. Poor ESPN got in a lot of trouble for the optics of their televised auction draft. Yes, poor ESPN. They cannot do anything right. They recently reassigned Robert Lee, an Asian American, from calling a Virginia game because his name is Robert Lee. That fucking happened. You just can't make this up. It seems every day I believe my phone is hacked or that the internet is hacked. Every major media platform has been hacked. That's how I felt when I read Robert Lee won't be calling the Virginia game because his name is Robert Lee, even though he's Asian American. (laughs) What? He's now receiving 10 times the amount of attention he would have otherwise. Attention he doesn't want or deserve, ESPN. On the heels of their televised auction embarrassment where they had players' faces glued to sticks and they were raising them like an auction paddle during their live auction. The problem was white people bidding on black people in an auction setting looks really bad. (laughs) Looks really bad. And you would think I would come on and criticize ESPN for this, that it was obvious that they should have known You don't put players' heads on sticks, particularly black players being held by white fantasy gamers. Not a good look. How could you fuck this up, ESPN? So stupid. I'm in auction leagues, and the best auction leagues are available on Reality Sports Online because they're Dynasty. That's my favorite format. Dynasty League football, even better yet. Dynasty League auction, even better yet. Dynasty League auctions with salary cap and contract functionality. That's what Reality Sports brings to the table. It's why they're different. It's why they're better. Reality Sports Online is a more stimulating way to play fantasy football because the platform was designed by former front office personnel. So they have an auction draft. They have a free agent auction room during the season. And all the rich features that Dynasty Leaguers need without the insanity of 50 million settings for the commissioner to manage. So go to Reality Sports Online now and use the promo code UNDERWORLD when you sign up to get a 10% discount on your team or league today. Fantasy just got real with realitysportsonline.com. So I didn't see the ESPN segment, but I read about it. And when you describe that segment to me, It doesn't sound problematic. And then when you see it on the screen, you see, oh, wow, okay. They should not have done this one. This should have landed on the cutting room floor. The problem is ESPN is trying this fantasy marathon concept. 
24 straight hours of fantasy programming. And if you're a producer trying to generate 24 hours of nonstop television, each segment cannot be scrutinized at the level that most segments are throughout the season. So maybe one producer signed off on that auction idea before they went live with it. So it's understandable how that happens when you're aggressively trying to program a 24-hour swath of television. It's easy to see how a poorly conceived segment that was offensive to many made it on to ESPN. And it's funny, right? It's just funny how ESPN can't do anything right lately. I have individuals on Twitter and my mentions criticizing their draft platform. I mean, it's one thing after another with ESPN. This ESPN auction controversy also highlights a problem I have with the entire conceptual framework of fantasy football. It makes me uncomfortable. Why does it make me uncomfortable? Because it's dehumanizing. Fantasy football is a game that's a proxy for another game. And when you start referring to players by ownership percentage, and then you take it a step further, and you start describing human beings as shares, talking about people as commoditized units, it's unsettling. But not unsettling enough to stop me from joining 28 leagues this season, many of which are auction. But I will say this for ESPN, their online auction is a great interface. Their live auction on television is an abomination. Their live auction room on ESPN.com is the best auction platform I've ever used. In fact, we have patron leagues, and those are auction style hosted on ESPN because of the quality of that platform. The draft room is sophisticated, and it's slick and intuitive. And there are still spots in our patron leagues that are drafting this weekend because obviously there's a buy-in. Of course there's a buy-in. It's $75 to join one of our listener leagues, and many listeners found out there was a buy-in and dropped out. But my thinking is, who joins a free league? No one wants to be in a league without stakes because no one is incentivized to give a shit. The only reason we have a buy-in is to make sure everyone gives a shit. We have active owners for a full season. These listener leagues leverage my ideal fantasy league format. Two quarterbacks three starting running backs, five starting receivers, two starting tight ends, one flex, no defense, no kicker, five bench spots only, auction style. Boom! 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 You're in a league like that, you whip your cock out, you lay it on the table when you're talking to anyone else, when they're talking about their league configuration, their settings, their scoring system, you just whip your cock out and you say, look at this. We start five wide receivers. But I have a short bench, so I have to make tough decisions every week. How about that? What do you think of this? So that's the Listener League, but they're for patrons only. So go to patreon.com, search Podfather, and join the community. You should have already joined the community. To keep this show on the air, if you appreciate the show, you should be going to Patreon, searching Podfather, and contributing at least $6 per month. That gets you a t-shirt, that gets you access to our patrons-only show that we do once per week, the online forums where we discuss the latest news, evaluate trades, who to pick up, lots of discussions happening in the forums, and now we have these listener leagues. Go ahead, get on Patreon to join a league today, because we only have a couple spots left, and it's auction. Now, what I'm about to say does not apply to our listener league auction. Our listener league auction is a different animal. It's a deep league. You need to focus on depth. 
but the average auction draft is easy to win. Where you're starting one quarterback, two running backs, three receivers, a flex, a tight end, a defense, a kicker, the traditional fantasy football league configuration. My strategy for those auction drafts is to allocate the vast majority of my money to wide receiver, particularly if it's PPR. We're talking half point PPR, PPR leagues. You should push the majority of your chips over to the wide receiver bucket in the draft. Wait on quarterback, let lots of quarterbacks go off the board, and then continue to bid a few bucks going up to $5 max on all the late round quarterbacks we've talked about on this show. Tyrod Taylor, Phillip Rivers, Andy Dalton, Carson Palmer. So you may not get your quarterback until the second half of the draft. At running back, I like to get one stud running back. Lock in a Melvin Gordon. This is the year to go for Melvin Gordon in your auction draft. And the beauty is that in an auction environment, David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell will close at irrationally high prices. So with a $200 budget, Le'Veon Bell might go for $65. David Johnson can go for $70, and that's too much. Not when you can get Melvin Gordon for $35.40. You just save $30, and you will likely get equivalent production. So build around one cornerstone back and just hope that he gets nominated later in the draft because you never want to buy those players that get nominated in the first 20 players because that's when everyone has money and you're competing against 11 other fantasy owners for each and every player. But as the draft moves along, those spending money early get knocked out, and because there's less competition for every player, you'll get a better value on a Melvin Gordon or a Ty Montgomery or a Joe Mixon in the middle part of the draft. So that'll be the running back you build around, and then you add a handful of zero RB backs later. You can add a high floor running back like a Darren Sproles and some high upside zero RB candidates like Marlon Mack, Javorius Allen, Devontae Booker, and Duke Johnson. And if you're like me, the moment you win the bid on one of these players, they will get hurt. So you're allocating 25% of your budget for running backs and 65 percent of your budget will go to wide receivers I would try to get Julio Jones because Julio Jones has the most upside of any wide receiver in all of fantasy football if the Falcons find themselves in negative game script contests and the running game is not nearly as effective as it was last year that means Matt Ryan will be forced to throw a lot particularly in the red zone this could be the year where we see Julio Jones post double digit touchdowns and he has an 1,800-yard season in his range of outcomes, this could be the year. Because Julio Jones did the bare minimum last year facing positive game script game after game. The Falcons didn't need to throw, so they didn't. If they find themselves in situations where they need to throw frequently this year, it's going to be wheels up on Julio Jones like we've never seen. So get Julio Jones and then focus on a handful of those wide receivers in the 5 to 15 area of the playerprofiler.com player rankings. So go to playerprofiler.com forward slash player dash rankings and you'll see the cheat code AJ Green, Des Bryant at 8, Keenan Allen at 12, Demarius Thomas at 13, Willie Sneed at 18, Jeremy Macklin at 24, and Jamison Crowder at 25. Focus on those receivers. Accumulate a basket of four to five top 25 wide receivers. And who knows, the way the auction goes, you could end up with four elite wide receivers. 
Because why not? Everyone wants first round picks, right? Well, why not acquire five players that would be drafted in the top 20 of a snake draft? That's how you win the auction format. And then just hammer your opponent on the head every week with elite receiver play, sneaky running back production, late round QBs, and don't forget that fuck you tight end. Jason Witten for a dollar. And if he goes for two bucks, no problem. Antonio Gates for a dollar. Maybe you're not an auction person. Maybe you prefer snake drafts. A lot of people love snake drafts. No shame in that. I prefer the snake drafts with the highest stakes. And that's the beauty of playing fantasy football at real-time fantasy sports. Because at real-time fantasy sports, you can enter the real-time fantasy football championship. It's a 144-team tournament with $32,000 of prizes paying $10,000 to the grand prize winner. So it gives you the upside of a high-stakes league without a high-stakes buy-in. I just recently found out about real-time fantasy sports, and I can't believe I didn't know about it before this because I always thought, man, it would be great if seasonal leagues had the equivalent of a GPP format, and sure enough, real-time fantasy sports created it. So go to rtsports.com forward slash underworld and join the real-time fantasy football championship now. But right now, 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 like right now, we need to talk to Sean Siegel from Rotoviz, one of my favorite writers in the industry. Follow him at FF underscore contrarian. Welcome to the Roto Underworld Radio Program. Sean Siegel. Ha <laughs> it's been a little while, but you had to suspect that Sean Siegel... FF Contrarian would be back on the show. Sean Siegel from Rotoviz, talk to me. Excited to be here. We've got a long slate of, of things to go over. We, we're going to have to bust through this. We have a lot of questions. I just kept writing questions down. And I thought I had enough questions listed, and then another question popped in my mind, and another question popped in my mind. So we're just going to start asking Sean Siegel questions until he passes out to satiate so many of you that have wandered over to the show and claim that we don't talk enough football. Well, I have something to say to those people. Off we go. You are the originator of Zero RB. That's the thing you're most recognized for. How does that differ from upside down drafting, though? Yeah, we talk about this from time to time. I, I think one of the easiest ways to think about it is just in terms of, of the names. And, and obviously, upside-down drafting is probably closer to what that actually is than zero running back. Since in zero running back, we are going to take some running backs at some point. But with upside-down, you have uh, this approach that's a balanced upside-down approach where you're going through, you're hitting the wide receivers early, uh, you're trying to make sure you get one of the best tight ends, one of the best quarterbacks. And then, you know, you're really picking out some running backs you feel very confident in and building that balanced team where you're saying, you know, by not drafting the running backs first, I can hit on my guys and I can take advantage of some of the trends. And and there are some, some real upsides to that. I think one of the big differences, one easy way to think about it is that in terms of zero running back, how it compares, how it's different. I mean, you wouldn't take a traditional drafting approach, say running back, running back, wide receiver, wide receiver. 
and say that that's just like zero running back because both of them believe in drafting wide receivers in the third and fourth rounds. Right, right. If you look at it that way, I mean, that would be kind of silly. The, the objectives, the types of lineups, the overall roster construction between the two different strategies is very different. And um, upside down has this, this very fragile, very confident, very I'm going to hit on my picks sort of style. And that can work. And specifically in, in some situations, that might be the right approach. I would say that that is basically what I did in our Apex Experts draft that we did a couple weeks ago where I'm drafting at the turn in order to compete with some of the things that are happening earlier in the draft, being in that tricky position, you know, taking a real swing for the fences, hoping my running backs hit sort of approach. That seemed to make sense. Overall, obviously I like zero running back because, you know, you have this anti-fragile approach, you're hitting the wide receivers, you in, in points per reception leagues, you're trying to get these, say, six guys to where you start three, you've got your flex, you've got your bye weeks. You know, you're going to obliterate people uh, in the middle of the season with your wide receiver firepower. Right. Zero RB is a strategy. I think of upside down drafting as a tactic. Upside down drafting is a round by round tactic, but it's not an overarching strategy that you can apply broadly to a draft. Rather than saying, in this particular draft slot, you should take this position, zero RB zooms out and says, no, no, we should think about value differently and factor in fragility into our positional valuations. And once you do that, you will find that you're not interested in these early round running backs because they get dominated by the wide receivers when you start factoring in year-to-year volatility and fragility into the valuation calculation. That's why I think 0RB is a more sophisticated, more strategic approach, as opposed to a mechanical round-by-round tactic. And obviously the hope with zero running back is that you're going to be able to build these super teams while at the same time, you know, actually not taking that risky of an approach. The whole idea of selecting a bunch of running backs late and selecting running backs with a very specific sort of profile. So you're accomplishing certain things is that you're going to have the wide receivers you need to have the super team as the season goes along. The various elements that we see with the NFL every season are going to allow the running backs that you've selected to really move up. I'm not going into the season hoping to simply have wide receivers that score some points and then some low end running back scoring. That's not the goal at all. You want in the end to have, you know, top 10 running backs, certainly top five running backs by the time you're in the fantasy playoffs. So it's not a a strategy where we're actually trying to give away a ton of running back points. That's not it at all. We're trying to take an approach that has this structural advantage that's a humble approach that realizes we're really not that good at projecting players. Even the very best projections have it explain very little in terms of the end of the season rankings. And you want to take advantage of all that by using an approach like zero running back that gives you a much more powerful team and foundation of a team to then benefit from what happens in the season. Yeah, zero running back gives you a higher floor and a higher ceiling once you look back at your completed roster once the draft has been completed. And Sean and I co-wrote the running back section of Roto World's fantasy football you book so go to google type in roto world and fantasy football you and get that book he and i talked about running backs through the prism of zero running back throughout 
that publication. It's must-read material because we were two of the contributors, along with Rich Rebar, J.J. Zacharyson, and on and on and on and on. Really a who's who A-team of fantasy writers contributing to that publication, as well as numerous writers like Josh Hermsmeyer from Rotoviz, and Sean Siegel was one of the founding writers of Rotoviz. So when you think back through the years, who was the best zero RB back of the last, say, 10 years? The best late round back you can remember, the league winner of the league winners in the last decade. I was looking back through the different rosters that I had had in some of the, the articles that I I wrote about this in terms of what you can accomplish. It, it it seems funny to say, you know, you can have this whole decade and then really it's just last year for me in terms of Melvin Gordon. The year before, probably even better with Devontae Freeman. I'm a little more partial to Gordon since he was the guy I was saying, you know, you've got to draft this person on every single team that you have. He's undervalued by three or four rounds. And that's one of the things, too, is your running back, because you can still pick players <laughs> if that's what you want to do. I mean, we're not just randomly selecting the running backs late. And when you have these guys out there, you know, like Gordon, who are undervalued by by that much, then, you know, it's just a gift to get them later. Um, some of the other fun people looking back, I the 2013 season for me tends to get a lot of the attention because, you know, I was so lucky with what happened in the fantasy playoffs. But, you know, that really depended so much on the receivers that year, which you know, obviously isn't a huge surprise when you're trying to load up. But I was looking back, 2012 was a fun year with C.J. Spiller, Doug Martin, Alfred Morris, you know, all together there, you know, having some zero running back teams that even played a running back in the flex. Oh, the Alfred Morris year. Woo! Right. The the first week, say, 950 of your 1,000 uh, free agent units to to make sure you get him. Talking about Melvin Gordon, let's focus on Melvin Gordon because I love Melvin Gordon. And while Melvin Gordon was the value of the values last year going in the eighth and ninth round, he perfectly illustrated why you buy inefficiency from the previous year and you sell extreme efficiency from the previous year expecting a reversion. And that's exactly what happened with Melvin Gordon. But it wasn't an extreme efficiency reversion. He went from being hugely inefficient to posting average efficiency. Yeah, and he's still... That means there's still upside left in the tank for Melvin Gordon. What if, in a role where he's getting 80% opportunity share, he becomes efficient this year? Are we looking at one of the NFL's top three running backs? I think that we are, especially with the suspension for Elliott. I'm putting together sort of the top 35 rankings for using our SimScore app. And, you know, that uses similarity scores from previous players, gives you a, a low, median, and high projection. And Gordon's projections were actually better than Elliott's. Even without the suspension? Even without the suspension, right. <laughs> oh, yeah! I wouldn't necessarily take him ahead of Elliott if that suspension weren't there. But if you're looking at the third pick and Elliott versus Antonio Brown, Odell Beckham, Julio Jones, I think that's pretty tricky. I would prefer Melvin Gordon versus some of the wide receivers later in the first round there. And so, you know, there, there are really only three points at which I would not use a zero running back strategy this year. And that would be, you know, if you've got a pick in the top two, 
you could certainly make an argument for taking those guys. If you've got a pick in the eight, nine range and you want to take Gordon, I think you can take Gordon and then take a bunch of wide receivers and your upside for a lineup like that or a roster like that is very high. I did that in the apex draft you talked about. So you went upside running backs in round four and five with Christian McCaffrey and Dalvin Cook, the unknown ceiling running backs. I just went Melvin Gordon and just all receivers for as long as possible afterwards. So in that way, some similar strategies in that neither one of us actually implemented zero RB in that particular draft. But is this the best year to go zero RB of all time. It's starting to feel that way, especially before the Ezekiel Elliott suspension. It had that feeling like if you were going zero RB this year, you were zigging while the others were zagging and you were going off in the right direction. Right. And, and one of the things you hear from time to time, one of the things you heard last year was this idea that because of zero running back and similar wide receiver heavy strategies that, the wide receivers became overvalued. And that's actually not what happened. If you look at the points implied by ADP, the you, just looking purely at the numbers, you can say that the running backs were actually still a little bit overvalued last year. Now that doesn't take into consideration this idea of a couple of super backs emerging. You know, this right. the situation where you have these two, you know, unbelievable superstars, that, that's really a different conversation. Right. But then you bring it back to this year and it's very easy to show that the running backs are wildly, wildly overvalued. And in any kind of situation like that, you know, that that plays into ZRB really well. My concern would be that at the same time that most of the landscape is, is very favorable, I think wide receiver is flatter than what we're used to seeing, say, rounds three through ten. And, and certainly if wide receiver is going to be flat, then that introduces some problems because you're not necessarily going to get the same uh, extra value from drafting a receiver in the third or fourth round uh, versus drafting them a little bit later that you would have gotten in a lot of seasons. This year, I think, is particularly bad, maybe one of the worst ever for breakout wide receivers. And one of the things that I like to do with your running back is to take you know these star wide receivers early you know you load up you get the first second third round guys and then say you know round four you know maybe someone like an Allen robinson you know the year before he jumped into the top five or you know round six seven you know deandre hopkins was going in round seven or eight right before he jumped into you know the top six or seven alshon jeffrey josh gordon those guys were going in the seven eighth round in that 2013 season where having them on all of my teams really was the difference maker i don't think we have those players this year and so they aren't there you're so right it's very difficult to identify a guy that's checking all the boxes and you know that opportunity is waiting for him like with deandre hopkins andre johnson signs with the indianapolis colts and it's just obvious so many that it's wheels up for DeAndre Hopkins. We don't have that guy this year. I don't see a young receiver who checks all the boxes going all the way back going all the way back to college that is destined for an ascendance. You're right. If I had to pick that guy, I would struggle this year. My brain is is churning right now and I can't give you a guy. I can't give you a guy. I'm thinking about Cameron Meredith. I mean, that's where my mind is going. That's a guy on the Bears with Mike Glennon. This is bad. Right. I think the three 
the three most obvious candidates, you know, first of all, if you're going to talk about someone with a secondary breakout, you know, you're looking at Stefan Diggs and he's a receiver who could very easily be drafted in the first round next year. But in, in the tightest drafts, he's already going in round three. And so a decent amount of that is priced in, not all of it, but, but most of it. Uh, then you look at the other two people who might be ready for their first breakout. The two people who most fit the evidence-based mentality, where you're looking at their college production, their draft slot, their rookie production, all of those kinds of things, you're really looking at Corey Coleman and Tyler Boyd. And for obvious reasons, those two players are not popular at all. The Browns offense is going to be a train wreck and Coleman, we don't have as good information as we would like because of all the injuries last year. Boyd is in a situation where because of that depth chart, it's very difficult to see him getting the volume that would allow for a real breakout. At the same time, I mean, if you do want to target someone, I mean, he's absolutely free. So uh, you're not going to lose anything by targeting him there. But certainly he's not someone you need to use that fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth round pick on. So again, we're not talking about guys in those rounds that you have to have. Yeah, Devontae Parker would be another one if we could project him to get a significant target share, but we just can't with Jarvis Landry there, and we don't know what we have in Jay Cutler. So there are a handful of guys that check a lot of boxes, but they're in awful situations, as you mentioned. Wow, that's depressing. So let's look at a couple more receivers that check a lot of boxes that are in bad situations. Let's go to rapid fire. We're gonna do a we're gonna do an early rapid fire. Pick one, Jordan Matthews, Sammy Watkins. Sammy Watkins. On the Rams? On the Rams. I think you've got to be excited about the coach over the other situations you have there. I think if you go from a, a coach who wants to run every play to a coach who actually wants to play a real NFL offense, then that's got to be a positive. I was not expecting you to say Sammy Watkins. Interesting. I'm writing this down. Okay. Pick two for redraft. Eric Decker, Rashard Matthews, Corey Davis. Eric Decker and Corey Davis. Okay. No Rashard Matthews. Bye, Rashard. Nice knowing you, buddy. Pick one. Cooper Cup or Zay Jones? Go with Jones. The Zay Jones. Isaiah Jones. You're not a Cooper Cup person. He doesn't fit a lot of what we're looking for at the same time. You know, I don't think you just ignore all of the positive things being said, number one, by scouts, or number two, just within the context of, of their training camp, their preseason games. Those things are encouraging. At this point with Watkins there as well, there's a lot of target competition. And sort of as you alluded to, I mean, there's certainly some big questions about the quality of that offense. Whereas Jones, I mean, he he has a clean runway now to a huge number of targets in his rookie year. This makes me very sad because these are the two prototypical college compilers with late breakout ages that I've been critical of for many years. Many years. I just learned about Zay Jones six months ago. And these are the two players that are either excelling beyond all expectation in preseason or scheduled to get number one wide receiver targets in their offense. It's just maddening. Why does, how does this happen to me every year? Pick one, Kenny Galladay, or any other rookie wide receiver. Well, I think if you look at it as the field, then you would take the field. But if you're having to pick a different rookie wide receiver, I'm going to go with Galladay. Oh, snap. He fits that exact same um, situation or issue you just mentioned, where his 
production has been insane. He went to the combine. He was much more athletic than anyone thought. But that production was late production. And so, you know, whether you look at information that we've put together on Rotoviz, you know, I've written about it, John Moore's written about it, Nick's written about it, or say you don't trust us and you want to go to a different source. I mean, Football Outsiders has also written about it at length that, you know, these senior breakouts, the late breakouts. Now, Galladay has two years of production there, which is very important. And Cup has obviously many, many years of production. The question is, you know, when they get to the NFL, how late they had to stay as college players before they would have been drafted to the positions they were drafted in in the NFL. But one of the reasons I like Galladay is I have always been very down on Golden Tate and Marvin Jones. And so I think it'll be much easier for him to carve out some targets there when you look at those two players who really are purely low-end, number two wide receiver kinds of players. Right. They're complementary receivers. In the Detroit offense, they've been bolstered by the volume. But now that you've got a guy who could actually be good, I think that volume goes, you know, to an extent to Galladay. Let's just say that you had your brain wiped with the exception of the basics about football. And you suddenly apparated onto the Detroit Lions practice field. And standing in front of you is Marvin Jones, Golden Tate, Kenny Galladay. And then you were able to watch a practice. Your takeaway would be that Kenny Galladay is the split-end X receiver, number one wide receiver playing the Des Bryant role for the Lions. That would be your takeaway if you were observing those three receivers just out of context. Now, when you put the context in place and you find out, oh, Galladay's a rookie and Golden Tate has 1,300-yard seasons on his resume and Marvin Jones was the number one wide receiver in fantasy through the first couple weeks of last season, your perception of Galladay changes. But without any context, if you were just looking at the Lions wide receiver core, you'd say, oh, well, this is the perfect talent configuration. You have Galladay at X, that's perfect. You have Marvin Jones at Z, that's perfect. You have Golden Tate in the slot, the yards after the catch monster, that's perfect. That's the ideal talent configuration would be having Galladay on the field at all times on the outside. And we may see that before the season is over, and I'm excited. So we talked about that was a great pick in the third round to get Kenny Galladay. Woof! Pat, the Lions GM on the back. But which rookie pick during the draft were you most perplexed by? Where you just said, what the hell is this team doing? There were a lot of wide receiver picks that were fairly surprising. I like them and I understand why they would go early, but having John Ross and Mike Williams in the top 10, especially to teams that weren't the most obvious fit, you know, that, that was pretty surprising. Right. I mean, you just said earlier that the Bengals had Tyler Boyd. This goes underreported that the John Ross pick was a terrible pick based on need. They didn't need John Ross. You don't take a luxury pick in the top 10. That's not how you do it. Well, at the same time, I think those picks are better than almost any running back pick. Well, of course, yes. Well, there's that. Because at least it signals that you want to run a real and contemporary NFL offense. It just was surprising since those guys are more late first round types of players. Right. Now, what about your favorite pick when you just look at the value and the fit of a particular player going to a particular team? This was an especially frustrating draft because I didn't think that any of the main guys really landed in in perfect spots wasn't it though i felt the same way as every pick was coming in i just kept thinking damn it damn it except when cooper cup went to the rams that made me happy 
if you if you've been stockpiling these 2017 first round rookie picks for years uh, because of the strength of this class, then you're going to be very frustrated that Christian McCaffrey goes to a team where throwing to the running back doesn't at least superficially seem to fit what they do. You're going to be frustrated by Dalvin Cook going to a team that just made a big free agent signing and doesn't have a particularly good offensive line or offense in general. You, know, you look at the different wide receivers and none of them seem to fit in. You know, you asked about perplexing picks. I was surprised that Chris Godwin went as late as he did behind some other people into a team that has two established starters now with um, the Deshaun Jackson signing. So really across the board, you saw these players lose value with the exception of someone like maybe Kareem Hunt, who goes to a team where he can now be the passing down back, you know, may win the starting job fairly quickly. And, you know, he and Marlon Mack, for example, looked like fairly similar prospects drafted differently. Um, now are looked at very differently in terms of both rookie drafts and redraft. But, you know, one of them obviously moves into that Andy Reid, you know, pass oriented to the running back uh, sort of offense. In, in terms of someone gaining value, it would certainly be him. Can you imagine Chris Godwin on the Bills? Oh my God, Chris Godwin on the Bills would be so incredible. That would make me so happy to see Chris Godwin immediately installed as the primary option in a passing game. He deserves that. He's that good. Now you talked about Christian McCaffrey. And as I mentioned, you drafted Christian McCaffrey at the 401 slot in the recent Apex Writers League that we participated in. What was your thesis there? Well, I think that he is the best rookie prospect. And even if you question the fit, and I think you have to question the fit, certainly they have made a lot of noise about moving toward an offense that fits what he can do. But when you're looking at running ability and then pass catching ability, if you're looking at a running back who could potentially catch, you know, 100 passes and is going to consistently catch a very high number of passes, I mean, he just, so I mean, he's obviously much, much smaller than David Johnson and Le'Veon Bell. And for that reason, he's going to be used differently. But when you're talking about a run-receive hybrid running back, he's just far and away the top guy. Yeah, he's the same size as LaShawn McCoy was coming out of Pitt. Right, and and much more athletic. And so when you look at look at those traits, look at what he can do, I mean, I think in some ways, worst-case scenario, what you're getting is just a more expensive Danny Woodhead. But if that's all that it ends up being, oh. that's really not that bad. I mean, certainly you can argue for Woodhead being undervalued every single season every season i mean danny woodhead is the ultimate high floor running back what about alvin kamara going much much later than christian mccaffrey but fantasy gamers are finally taking notice because of the vividness bias you see that guy with the splash play the long touchdown in preseason the fantasy drones wake up who's this guy alvin kamara let me learn more about him let me go to (laughs) playerprofiler.com It's about time. Is his upside Christian McCaffrey? Yeah, that Saints backfield is so is so I don't know, confusing, but it's it's gonna be tricky to play because you have Ingram, who is the very established starter. He's talking a lot about how he's going to be even more involved in the passing game. And I think a little bit as as a surprise. Yeah, sure, buddy. Yeah, sure, buddy. Yeah, t- tell me another one, Mark. <laughs> he's been a pretty effective receiver, but he's gonna have pressure from the carries with Peterson on the receptions from the other side we call that a touch squeeze oh the dreaded touch squeeze for mark ingram 
the safest and cheapest way to play, and perhaps even the highest upside way to play, is simply to select the pass-catching running back that the coaching staff, the entire organization, is incredibly high on. Yep. You get him a lot cheaper. If one of those first two guys gets injured, he's actually going to have a very solid number of touches. It, it's just a very straightforward way to play that backfield, I think. The New Orleans backfield reminds me of the New England backfield in that way, in that they have this established pass catcher who is also the last of the top three running backs in that backfield to be drafted in many cases, James White. So when you look at this New England backfield, do you think that Mike Gillisley has jumped the shark? And if so, which Patriots running back is the best value right now? Well, I own Rex Burkhead on every single one of the teams that I've drafted this oh, season. Baby. I noticed you drafted him at Apex. I did. I saw that. Little Rex Burkhead. I don't know if that will work. Certainly, it could be a situation where he even has a good season and yet isn't very playable for the obvious reasons that every single game, you know, their approach is opponent-specific. But for the price, when you're talking about, I mean, he, he's really in that Mark Ingram role to an extent. I mean, clearly he's not as locked in as the main guy as Ingram is. That's right. I was hoping you would say that. You're saying the thing I wanted to say. I love it when that happens. Yes, keep talking. Well, you, you have this situation where he's going to get touch pressure from both sides. You know, the uh, carries from Gillisley, the receptions from White, and possibly also Lewis. And that could completely squeeze him out. And he's being drafted as though he will be squeezed out. At the same time, right. If they move more to an offense where they want to have that flexible player on the field so that they're not telegraphing their plays. Now you look at the Patriots offense and it's unstoppable when they do telegraph their plays. So from a certain perspective, so why would they care? You know why? But imagine if they weren't telegraphing. Imagine if they had a running back with the between the tackles capability of LeGarrette Blunt, who is also an exceptional receiver. Imagine that. Just imagine. Just imagine that. Imagine. Imagine. Right, and, and when you're talking about the standard they've set for for people running on the inside, it's not particularly high. I mean, the player they let go you know, may not make the team he signed with. Right. Do you mean the Sammy Morris archetype that they often cultivate? You're talking about replacing production. That's probably pretty replaceable. Yeah, so with, with these four runners, I, my biggest concern really for Burkhead would not be the two players who are drafted ahead of him. But more, if Lewis is all the way back and it also factored in and you start to get to four running backs and four very good running backs, then at least in, from a redraft perspective, not a best ball perspective, then it's just almost going to be impossible to play them effectively. But when you're buying, I, I would buy Burkhead at those prices. Exactly. And you can't justify drafting Mike Gillisley in the fourth round with such an ambiguous backfield. Right. And they're not going to have the number of rushing touchdowns that they had last year. If they do have them, they're not going to all go to one player. And so he's certainly the one guy I think you cannot draft from that team. You cannot draft Mike Gillisley. But when you look at New Orleans and you look at New England, you know there's going to be a lot of points scored there. And nobody knows. So just take the inexpensive guys. Draft Alvin Kamara. Draft Rex Burkhead and James White. Another high-octane offense. Very efficient, prolific, the Green Bay Packers. We saw last year an inefficient Devontae Adams scored double-digit touchdowns. Is he now the locked-in number two wide receiver in Green Bay? A couple of years ago, I made this statement that I thought Adams was the safer player to own going forward in dynasty formats. 
than Cobb. That was probably a, a silly statement to make. In some ways, it appears to have played out that way. Adams obviously had a very good season last year, at least from a point-scoring perspective. Pretty smart statement, man. Randall Cobb is, is wildly undervalued. I mean, he's the guy where he's now had two consecutive poor seasons in the context of two consecutive seasons where he was injured. Coming back healthy right. with the way that their touchdowns are going to be distributed, you know, it's, that's another situation where I think the the talent, the situation is probably somewhat e- even. You know, you definitely want to take the the cheaper player. Yeah, the arbitrage play in the Green Bay passing game is absolutely Randall Cobb. He's that historically productive player that the fantasy community has simply forgotten about and could roar back in 2017. No one would be surprised. No one. Not a single person, Sean. Not one person would be surprised if you and I are having this conversation a year from now, August 2018, and we're talking about drafting Randall Cobb in the third round. Who the hell would be surprised if that conversation was happening a year from now? You know what they would be surprised by? If we were having a conversation about Jeff Janis and how Jeff Janis is a great value in the fifth round or the sixth round. I mean, is it possible? Is it possible because he's having another stellar preseason and we're giving Cooper Cup a hell of a lot of credit for making plays in preseason, but no one wants to talk about Jeff Janis. So my question is, does preseason matter or not? I like to use it to look for potential end-of-the-roster additions. I think if you're moving people in your top six or seven rounds very much, then there's probably a lot more risk than there is reward to to making those kinds of changes. The Amir Abdullah corollary, you don't want to move Amir Abdullah up five rounds. (laughs) Right, right, right. Right, right. Jeff Janis, I mean, we have enough information at this point suggesting that they – don't want to play him when the real games are going that, you know, he's, he's this size speed specimen on a team that could really use that, you know, at this point, right. We've got plenty of information that Devonte Adams is solid. It's a possession receiver. He's a possession receiver. Yeah. He's not challenging the defense. Randall Cobb, not challenging the defense. If you put another explosive receiver out there, it would seemingly help the offense. But at the same time, their offense has been so good, I think, at least for the Packers, not necessarily for all the teams, but I think you've got to give them some credit for knowing what they're doing, making that offense work. I give Mike McCarthy zero credit for anything, and I think it's very similar to what you were talking about with New England. And their running game just works because it's part of a system that is invincible. And Aaron Rodgers is invincible. So no matter who you put, no matter what soldier you put in the Legionnaire's armor, if he is a member of an invincible army, he will be victorious. He will be holding the sword over his head. It doesn't matter that he's not that good. (laughs) It just doesn't matter. Ty Montgomery is another cog in that wheel. What is his upside in this Packers offense? He could certainly finish as a top five back. When you look at someone who has some hybrid ability, who is going to get some normal running back touches, is going to get some work, you know, inside inside the ten, and could really morph into that kind of back with the receiving background, who catches 60, 70 passes. You're talking about someone, you know, who could just really light the world on fire. The other side of that is that even with the very positive things that he's done, they seem pretty skeptical. And now we have the injury issues as well. So 
he's he's one of those real risk reward players early because he could finish as someone who you know would be an easily justifiable first round pick or it's a good example of why you use your running back right he could finish as someone who is released by fantasy owners after the first month and i think you want to avoid that early you do he was the best value among the running backs in fantasy football in the fifth sixth and seventh rounds in march april but his adp has been a helium balloon rising around every month now he's in the third round no he's in the third round with the sickle cell trait i almost feel like i should refuse to draft the sickle cell trait players in the first five rounds that would knock out Ty Montgomery, that would knock out Tevin Coleman, and it would knock out John Brown and save myself a lot of injury-related stress and misery. So I'm not drafting Ty Montgomery in the third round, and I love Ty Montgomery, but I just can't do it because of the risk at the running back position. You can't take a zero on a third-round pick in October. I mean, you can't do it. I'm not doing it. Rather go zero running back, and you can find these satellite back plus players much later in the game. We've talked a lot about Duke Johnson on this show, but what about Shane Vereen? Is he the most undervalued of the zero RB satellite back plus backs? You can say no. You can say, I know it's a leading question. You can say no. Yeah, I would, lo- I would be interested in hearing more of your argument for him. Well, my argument for him is that he has the capability to carry an offense, not an 80% opportunity share like a Melvin Gordon, but certainly a 60% opportunity share. He has the sturdiness that you like. He has the incredible upper body strength, the pass catching ability, and he's the only running back on that roster with juice. And that's it. He's the only one with juice. And the injuries he's sustained have been a forearm injury, a wrist injury. It's a random assortment of injuries. I don't consider Shane Vereen injury prone, but I consider him by far and away the most talented running back on a roster devoid of running back talent otherwise. Paul Perkins is one of the most overdrafted running backs in the league. He's average at best. I mean, Paul Perkins' ceiling is average running back in the NFL. Wayne Gallman is an undersized between-the-tackles grinder. Okay. So really, Shane Vereen's competing with Orleans Darkwa for most talented running back on that roster. And he's also the guy with a lot of experience that's trusted by the coaches and by Eli Manning. So he's going to be very involved in the passing game. And I don't see why he can't get 10 plus carries. So at that point, you're taking a guy in the 14th round that's going to be getting 15 touches a game. Yes, please. Yeah, and I know Ben Gretsch really loves Vereen as well. I guess the concerns I have, everything that you said is, is definitely the case, uh, especially the fact that the Giants have nobody. Nobody! Nobody! Those are the backfields you want to target because they could really open up. Vereen was someone who appeared to be mildly overdrafted by the Patriots originally and then was only moderately effective with them, and then they allowed to leave. And so those things combine for me to paint the picture of someone who probably doesn't have that ability to break out to the next level and be a league winning type of player. And so it, it depends a lot on, on what your roster construction is like, where you are when you get to that late pick, whether you need someone in sort of the Chris Thompson role where you want to protect yourself against, you know, say you're making some risky picks, which I've suggested that that you can make this year 
if you want to take a lot of risk at the running back position, take someone like Tevin Coleman, take someone like Derrick Henry. If you use picks on those types of players fairly early, then you perhaps are going to need some more protection and players like that might be more appealing late. He lost a lot of, he was, Shane Vereen was ineffective last season, but he was also battling tricep injury and other injuries. The year before that, when he played 16 games, positive 23.4 production premium on playerprofiler.com, looking at every given down and distance. How was Shane Vereen performing above or below expectation? So great production premium, 6.3 yards per touch, top 10 in the league, 1.12 fantasy points per opportunity top 10 in the league in 2015. So he's been very effective when given opportunity. And I don't see any reason why his opportunity share could grow to 40%, which would be a career high for him, even at age 28. I think we haven't seen the best of Shane Vereen yet. And it helps that he's really the only player with quote unquote talent on that roster. And for that reason, I think that he has some upside. He doesn't have league winner upside, like you said, but in that Apex Fantasy League that we both participated in, I also drafted Joe Mixon, and I didn't draft many running backs in the middle rounds. I was mostly drafting wide receivers, just one after another after another, Eric Decker, Rashard Matthews, Cole Beasley, Devin Funchess. So at the end of the draft, I was drafting Darren Sproles and I was drafting Shane Vereen type backs to give myself a floor. Now, who is the most undervalued zero RB running back? If it's not Shane Vereen, who is the best late round zero RB back? The guy that could win your league drafted in the last round. I know this is a hard question. It may not exist, but at least try to make something up. People need this guy. They want Sean Siegel on a show to give them this particular guy. I want you to tell me this guy. (laughs) Well, this is going to seem inappropriate since I left him completely off my top 15 zero running back list just a week ago and had Robert Turbin on the list as the last guy. But if you've been reading any of the stuff that that Nick Giffen has been doing, reading our draft um, series, our draft reactions. Oh, no. I think I know where this is going. Oh, (laughs) I'm starting to shake. My toes are starting to tingle. My whole body is starting to quiver. Continue. Right. So throughout the entire rookie process, the guy I was targeting sort of at the end of the second, middle of the third, even dropped late into the third in some cases was Marlon Mack. And... Like I mentioned earlier, I mean he's he's got some similarities, probably a little bit more athletic than Kareem Hunt, uh, and is playing in this Indianapolis offense where, despite what they've spent on it over the last five years, they have very little talent. And so, <laughs> if you're looking at it and you're saying Andrew Luck, he's got some injury problems that will probably be resolved within the first month of the season. You're more interested in what's going to happen from week eight to the end with your last round pick. You know, you look at guys like Frank Gore, Robert Turbin, and you're saying, you know, those guys are not going to make a difference within that offense. They're not going to take the offense from what it is now to the style of offense that with Andrew Luck, you would like to see, you know, you would like to see an explosive, terrifying uh, scoring at will. Yes. Yes. 
And the thing that I kept saying as I was talking to people, asking them why he wasn't being drafted earlier was simply that there wasn't any buzz. Well, after the most recent preseason game, you know, you saw him go out there, break some tackles, do some exciting stuff. All of a sudden, the buzz is there. Doing what he was doing at South Florida for years. Doing what he was doing going back to high school when he was the most highly touted running back recruit of his class out of high school, which included Dalvin Cook. Go ahead. Yeah, so when you're looking at the late rounds, you're looking at a guy who, you know, I think you mentioned Vereen. And I think the upside there is that if they get all of that wide receiver talent going and they start marching up and down the field, Eli Manning, you know, there have been a couple other times where Eli Manning looked like he was done. And then he looked like he was done again last year. The team even seemed to send out some signals that they were very worried. If the wide receivers they have now, if all that talent around him now allows them to move up and down the field, then Vereen becomes very exciting because you have more touches within the framework of those touches being higher value. You know, you get down inside the 20. You could do something like we've seen with Danny Woodhead where you can actually use those space backs very effectively as scoring backs if you run your offense properly. Right. The Colts, I don't think you even have to have those hopes. The, the main thing, you just have to hope that, that Andrew Luck is okay. If he's there, you know, even with all the other weaknesses they have on offense, they're going to move the ball. You have Mac. He's the most explosive runner. Suddenly, he becomes very interesting. Very interesting. I mean, he's best comparable to Melvin Gordon and Todd Gurley in the playerprofiler.com database. We talk about Duke Johnson. We talk about C.J. Procise. They don't have the upside that Marlon Mack does because he has standalone value like Duke Johnson in week one as the satellite back, as the designated pass catcher out of the backfield. Marlon Mack is the satellite back plus prototype that we talk about, and he is the best of the satellite backs. Now, now we've talked about a lot of running backs that we like. And I mentioned Paul Perkins, who I don't like. One more running back that's being grossly overdrafted besides Paul Perkins. That's a tricky question because when you look at the fourth round, it's basically a round you'd like to wipe out entirely. Right? Yes. All of the early down backs who are being drafted in that range, you don't want any part of. You know, you don't want any part of Carlos Hyde. You don't want any part of Mark Ingram. You don't want any part of Amir Abdullah. You don't want any part of CJ Anderson. You certainly don't want any part of Spencer Ware. You've got to avoid that section of the draft at running back. And then the, the question becomes sort of like we talked about earlier. Avoid Mike Gillisley. Exactly. Exactly. And then, you know, who do you pick then? Because like we talked about, the wide receivers are also not particularly appealing. And that's one of the reasons why I really like the early tight end this season. Even if you don't get the most exciting tight ends with Gronk or Reed, you know, if you can take Kelsey, if you can take Olsen in those spots, I think that will allow you to address a position that's still very shallow. You know, that that there are some later somewhat intriguing upside tight ends, but overall, most of the owners in your league are not going to get good production from the tight end position. I think you can address it by avoiding both wide receivers and running backs in that area. Wow. 
And a couple rounds after that, you can also get Jimmy Graham, who I also think is a great value there. And by the way, I see you. I see you that I asked you for one grossly overdrafted running back, and you gave us seven. That is the bang for your buck from Sean Siegel. But if you weren't able to get Greg Olson, Jimmy Graham, Travis Kelsey, you had to wait. Who's your late-round tight end du jour? It's awfully hard to resist Jerry Cook because he's someone who's never been good. So right. why wouldn't we just why wouldn't we just take another big swing on him this year yeah. with Derek Carr? You're not going to find a more maddening player across the NFL landscape than Jared Cook. So why not? Because the receiving options on that team are Amari Cooper, Michael Crabtree, and Jared Cook. He's the number three option on a passing attack that's been getting more and more efficient and prolific. There is a case to be made for the tight ends that nobody likes, the tight ends with warts. That will command significant target shares in efficient offenses that visit the red zone frequently. That's Jared Cook, and that's Kobe Fleener. Now, we talked earlier about DeAndre Hopkins. If Tom Savage is competent, are we too low on DeAndre Hopkins right now, given his volume and likely TD reversion? I don't think so. I think he's probably valued correctly. Most of the time, most of the drafts that that I do, he's drafted in the middle of the second round. And that's, I think, where you have to have... Because I think the question, if Tom Savage is competent... It's a big question, (laughs) right? It's a big question. I've been seeing him go in the third and fourth rounds, actually. So second round, I believe, is fair, if not aggressive. I'd like to get him in the fourth round, if possible. And I think... We didn't mention him earlier, but the other pretty exciting potential breakout wide receiver, if you assume decent quarterback play, would be Will Fuller. But with the injury there, then all of a sudden it's wide open and Hopkins, you have to assume, is going to get the vast majority of the targets and possibly lead the NFL in target share. So if you do get competent quarterback play, then you're looking at the kind of volume that we saw in the first half of his 2015. Check this out. DeAndre Hopkins was... Number seven in targets last year, and his 26.2 target share was number nine, but his red zone target share, 14.7%, 72nd in the NFL, and his red zone receptions, 389th in the NFL. DeAndre Hopkins actually had more touchdowns than he had red zone receptions because they refused to use him in the red zone for some unknown reason, some ungodly unknown reason. These numbers are going to come back into balance. They have to. There was going to be a mean reversion with these DeAndre Hopkins red zone numbers, and I don't see the target share diminishing. So for that reason, if you're looking for the safest possible pick in the third round, I think it is DeAndre Hopkins. But they will move to Watson fairly early and make it a more difficult passing offense again. Oh, don't. Please. I mean, he's struggling in the preseason. I mean, there are very few players that I hope struggle. I want to see players do well. We want to see good football. But I do enjoy watching Deshaun Watson struggle because we know he's out of his depth. We just need him to struggle to such an extent that it dissuades the Houston coaches from playing him. We need him to have an awful week three and week four of the preseason to protect DeAndre Hopkins upside. I can't believe we're putting our hopes in Tom fucking Savage of all players. I can't believe we're here. I can't believe we're having this conversation. 
If someone told me a year ago that you'd be having a conversation with Sean Siegel in which you were hoping and praying that the starting quarterback for the Houston Texans would be Tom Savage, I would not have believed that person. I would have dismissed that person out of hand. I would have told them to get away from me, to leave my home, shut the door behind them, and never come back. Well, now we're here. This is the conversation we're having. We're also having a conversation about the Jacksonville Jaguars quarterback. Can Chad Henney or Brandon Allen re-unlock Allen Robinson and Marquise Lee? And by the way, I said Marquise Lee because get out of here with Allen Hearns. I don't want to hear about Allen Hearns. Marquise Lee is the number two receiver for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Enough Allen Hearns. Can these wide receivers be saved? I don't think so. At the same time, I have a lot of ownership of them for this season, so I hope that's the case. (laughs) Raising my hand too, right? I mean, it's... A bummer, but we're just hoping and praying that a miracle happens because Marquise Lee is good at football, Allen Robinson is good at football, and watching them play, even in preseason, is demoralizing, and I just hope they can keep their morale up. I mean, that's really what we're hoping for. Like a video game, when you see the the life meter, there really should be a morale meter on those Jacksonville wide receivers. So we talked earlier about stacking Patriots running backs, potentially James White, Deion Lewis, Rex Burkhead, those that are priced correctly, not Mike Gillisley. Do you have a favorite backfield stack where you can draft the starter like a Frank Gore and then a primary backup with upside that may also have standalone value like a Marlon Mack? Did I just steal your answer or do you have another one? I don't think there are any great opportunities to draft a starter in a backup, although you could do it with McCaffrey and Jonathan Stewart. Yeah. And many people will tell you that Stewart actually is the starter in some ways, and he's he's very inexpensive. I think I'm mostly looking to stack the backups. So when I put together my zero running back list of targets, uh, ProSize and Rawls both jump out. Yes. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. <laughs> the one we just talked about, I think that you could draft both Turban and Mac. One more. Give us one more, just for posterity. Jaquiz Rogers and Jeremy McNichols. Jaquiz Rogers and Charles Sims. Charles Sims and Jaquiz Rogers. Charles Sims and Jeremy McNichols. Anyone but Doug Martin? I think I'm probably off all of the Buccaneers. I don't trust that offense. I don't trust what they're trying to do. I don't trust the quarterback. Um, I think it'll either be successful because they can pass, in which case the running backs are not going to come into play that heavily, or if they make it, something of a a run-oriented offense to try and protect the quarterback, which is what they did in the second half of last season. And certainly they're trying to get away with that, get away from that with all of the acquisitions that they made. But if that's the approach they take, I don't think they'll be successful. And that's the same thing with the quarterbacks on the Jaguars. I don't think it matters who the quarterback is there if it's not a star, because anytime your head coach comes in and says, my preference would be to run every play, then you just you, you almost have to cross the receivers off your list. Now, with Robinson and Lee, you know, I, I drafted Robinson in like the eighth round of the Scott Fish Bowl. I mean, I can't not pick Allen Robinson in the eighth round. Uh, Marquise Lee, he's available 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th round. He had a good season last year. You can go look at airyards.com. You can see how his air yards conversion to receiving yards is better than Robinson and Hearns over the last three seasons, not just this past one. Like you said, I mean, those guys are huge talents, but anytime that the coach comes out and tells you our offense is going to be intentionally bad, then I think you want to move in a different direction. I love it. Intentionally bad. I love it. I love, we're going to try to make that into the title of the show. 
Allen Robinson intentionally bad. It's not even his intention. It's the coach's intention. This makes me so upset, Sean. It makes me so angry to hear what you're saying. But it's true. It's true. What you're saying can't be denied. It's undeniable. So who's the player you essentially dismissed two years ago that you appreciate now? This is probably going to sound sort of strange, but but Cobb and Kelvin Benjamin are both guys where I was very down on what they brought to the table and and what their value was. I, I think it's a lot easier to appreciate people who, you know, if someone goes from being overvalued to then where they're almost certainly undervalued for a couple of rounds, it's very easy in your head to go back and and make the argument to the direction and say, you know, we've we've probably overcorrected here. Mm-hmm. You know, if if the Panthers are going to throw the ball successfully, you know, it's going to almost have to go through Kelvin Benjamin. With the Packers, you know, how can you have a guy who's done what Cobb has done and is knocked essentially only for injuries and then fall into a range where, you know, he's two or three rounds below guys who, you know, their best case scenario is to do what Randall Cobb has already done multiple times. Right. So I like those guys a lot more now than I did two years ago when I was probably more critical than was deserved. The Randall Cobb dismissal reached absurd proportions in dynasty leagues this offseason as you got to see a Brashad Perriman get drafted ahead of a Randall Cobb. Randall Cobb, who is a starting wide receiver in three receiver sets for the Green Bay Packers, tethered to Aaron Rodgers, is 27 years old. At the time he was being dismissed in Dynasty Leagues this season, he was 26 years old still. He just turned 27. And you're drafting Brashad Perriman over that guy? What are you doing? So you've loved Stephon Diggs for a long time. But I have to ask you this question. What about Adam Thielen? He's the guy you, you've got to target now because Diggs is someone, like in the Apex draft, I wanted Diggs so badly. My choice there was to take him at the first, second round turn, which really, I think, isn't as silly as it sounds. I mean, at that first, second round turn, you're looking at Michael Thomas, Amari Cooper, Brandon Cooks. Um, and then, you know, I think you can look at Stefan Diggs. Now, all of those guys are overvalued in terms of where I'm putting them compared to where they're generally being taken. But but those are the people I'm looking at. After this show, it's clear I fucked up drafting Allen Robinson over Stephon Diggs at 306. I mean, I am whacking myself on the top of the head with a tack hammer right now because of that. I'm sorry, Sean. I'm sorry. Do you still think I'm smart? <laughs> That's a pretty bold admission, even though these drafts are public and everyone can see them. Oh, I, I mean, it's Allen Robinson in the middle of the third round. I don't think. I mean, that's the thing, right? This is why it's so frustrating. God, stop doing this to me, Jaguars. I hate you. I hate you, Dad. Sorry. So if Diggs isn't going to come back to you with even your third round pick, then, you know, you've got to look at Thielen because he had an excellent season last year. Excellent. You know, going to the air yards projection countdown you know he comes in there around 30 and his draft position is you know years and years after that you're talking about someone who is available in round 8 9 10 11 12 12th round i've seen him drafted 12th round the most efficient wide receiver in the nfl last season going in the 12th round right and and that offense is going to be three guys it's going to be Diggs, Thielen, and cook and it's certainly not going to emerge at the level of a New Orleans Saints, a New England Patriots, uh, Green Bay Packers, but 
when you look at what Diggs can do, when you look at what Thielen can do, when you look at the talent they have with Dalvin Cook as being not just, you know, a decent rookie runner, but a hybrid back who can bring some things to the table so you don't have to go with either your early down back or your pass catching back. You know, you can run a more flexible offense. Uh, and then you look at the fact that Sam Bradford, who is never going to be a top 15 quarterback, but is solid. He only led the NFL in completion percentage, setting a new NFL single season record. Why? Because Adam Thielen caught 75% of the passes thrown in his direction and logged a 10.5 yards per target top five in the NFL. Thank you, Adam Thielen, for helping me not look incompetent. Signed, Sam Bradford. Right, and a lot of that completion was due to, you know, one, two, three-yard passes. But you can also go back and look, and Thielen's conversion on passes in the 15 to 20-yard range was incredible. And contested catches, 83% contested catch conversion rate. I mean, this guy's good at football. Right, I think anytime you have someone who to an extent comes out of nowhere. You know, I've, I've looked at the different breakouts, uh, put out the big, you know, 99 wide receiver breakouts from the last 16 years article again the other day. And that's on rotoviz.com. The receivers who break out somewhat out of nowhere a little bit later in their careers, and this is very intuitive. It's not like this is any kind of surprising revelation, but they do not go on as a group to have nearly the kinds of results that people who break out you know, as rookie stars, you know, your Odell Beckham is your Amari Cooper. At the same time, exactly like you said, when you look at what Adam Thielen did last year, he was one of the best wide receivers in the NFL. And if you want to have a part of that offense that I think is going to be a solid offense, he's the guy you can get at a big discount to what he's going to give you. We've talked about how the Dallas Cowboys have the most extreme schedule shift of any team, going from the easiest schedule to arguably the hardest schedule this season. The opposite is true for the Minnesota Vikings. They go from having one of the hardest schedules to one of the easiest schedules. And in particular, they faced the most difficult pass rushers in the NFL in 2016 with the most injured offensive line. This year, it all flips in the other direction. If their offensive line can stay healthy, that means more offensive efficiency. That means more red zone visits. That means more touchdowns for Adam Thielen. I mean, everything is pointing up for this Minnesota offense. Yes, led by Sam Bradford, but we've seen game managers lead top 10 offenses. I mean, look what Andy Dalton did a few years ago, reaching top five fantasy quarterback status and propelling A.J. Green into the top three fantasy football wide receivers, as well as Tyler Eifert in the top two fantasy football tight ends that season. So it's very possible if you spin it forward and you start thinking about possibilities with a soft schedule facing the New Orleans Saints in week one that Sam Bradford could have an Andy Dalton-esque season. I mean, is that crazy, Sean? Is that crazy to say that former number one pick Sam Bradford could have an Andy Dalton-esque season? I mean, that's not ridiculous at all. I mean, who would say that's ridiculous? It's very easy to imagine. And then you have Diggs and Thielen and Rudolph and Rudolph and Thielen and Diggs and Thielen and Diggs and Rudolph catching all of these efficient passes going up and down the field and Adam Thielen's being drafted in the double digit rounds it's crazy it's almost as crazy as Cole Beasley's ADP 
Because when you talk about how game flow shifts based on strength of schedule, you have to imagine the Dallas Cowboys will be throwing a lot more this year with a much more difficult schedule. That means more snaps for Cole Beasley, who was top 10 in the NFL last season in hog rate targets per snap. So are you drafting Cole Beasley in the double-digit rounds as your final receiver to round out your roster? No, but only because he rarely fits in what I want for the roster at that point. Ryan Malone had an awesome article on BC the other day making a lot of the same points, and it was titled Draft Your Wide Receiver 3 Right Before Your Kicker. I picked my QB after my kicker once. I think you can probably draft your kicker and then come back and get Beasley. Uh, Exactly like you said, he has this ability to do what we want from a possession receiver. The possession receivers who are very established or in higher volume offenses, they tend to be drafted really earlier than than I would like in terms of what they provide for upside. Right. Certainly people who are established, they're established for a reason and they're drafted where they are for a reason. But if you're going to target that profile, why wouldn't you go ahead and target someone like Beasley who had the season he had last year, but it wasn't that fantasy relevant simply because of the structure of their offense. If that changes and there are very good reasons that it should change or will change, then Suddenly, if he simply does the same things, and of course we have all of these camp puff pieces suggesting that he's gotten you know much much better even. But if he does the same kind of things with more volume, then suddenly you know he becomes a great pick and the perfect person. Especially I think if you decide to do something like go with a running back heavy roster early, where you're trying to take shots at some of these people who, if things break right, if they do stay healthy, you know people like you know Howard. And Gurley, if you are stockpiling some of those players, still hopefully avoiding those guys I mentioned. Of course, always, always avoiding Spencer Ware at all costs. <laughs> right. right. You know, if you come back with Beasley, you know, one of the things that happened last season was you had these teams where, you know, they had David Johnson. In many cases, they had Le'Veon Bell because of the discount you got with the suspension. They had LaShawn McCoy. And then there were also opportunities for owners last year to come back with some decent receivers that they got late. I don't know that that will be the case in the exact same way this year, although you know we've talked about people like Thielen already. If you put together that kind of roster, you almost have to come back and add a player like Cole Beasley at the end of your roster. That's right. If you go running back heavy, you cannot draft rookie wide receivers in those middle and late rounds. You have to go with the Cole Beasleys because look at who's being drafted around Cole Beasley. John Ross, Kenny Stills, Taylor Gabriel, Mohamed Sanu, Chris Hogan, Travis Benjamin. But there is a guy drafted in that area who I believe you qualify for truther status on, and that's Paul Richardson. So why are you so bullish on Paul Richardson? I like Richardson. He had great numbers coming in to the NFL. He's got that speed. He's a good fit for what they want to do offensively. And we really don't have a very good idea of what he is as an NFL player because of all the injuries. Now, before he got hurt as a rookie, he was having a slow campaign. So we can factor that in. At the end of last season, when they needed him and he was healthy for that spurt, he looked unreal. I mean, he looked like easily their best player, showing the ability to separate, showing the ability to make very difficult catches, adding that vertical dimension to the offense that I think that they want, but haven't exactly gotten from the players they've they've tried to deploy. Yeah, Jermaine Curse finally 
finally, at long last, the official Seahawks depth chart demoted Jermaine Curse and elevated, you guessed it, Paul Richardson. And Paul Richardson, not that they're identical players by any stretch, but Paul Richardson in many ways is Tyler Lockett at a discount. And so if you're looking at that offense being Doug Baldwin, Lockett, Richardson, and then obviously Jimmy Graham stealing some targets as well, I think, again, this is a situation where it makes sense to take the least expensive player, certainly to take the least expensive player after Baldwin, who is locked into a certain number of targets. But Richardson is even, again, one of the reasons why, not that I avoid taking Baldwin. I've got him on some Dynasty League teams. Certainly, if you, you know, fall into the middle of the second round, you know, there's no problem with taking him there. But they do have some other weapons this season, at least if you assume a little bit of health that they haven't had in the past. And when you're already looking at someone who has to have great efficiency in order to make the targets they do have uh, fantasy relevant, then, you know, those are concerns because they are going to have, at least at this point, (laughs) before players start falling by the wayside, they have a very talented offense. They do. They really do. I mean, Paul Richardson and Tyler Lockett and Jimmy Graham. And they so they have Doug Baldwin, Paul Richardson, Tyler Lockett, Jimmy Graham. That's one of the most talented receiving cores in the NFL. And no one talks about them being one of the most talented receiving cores, but they absolutely are. It's just that they're all small. But so what if you're small? Paul Richardson is explosive. He's explosive Tyler Lockett. 126.6, 127th percentile burst score on playerprofiler.com. He has a bigger catch radius than Tyler Lockett. So don't be surprised when it's Paul Richardson opposite Doug Baldwin in two receiver sets. Right, and then you have ProSize as well. ProSize too! I almost almost didn't forget. I had ProSize in there! Holy shit! And I think people certainly understand that Wilson was injured last year and that that affected the offense across the board. But... It's when people do play. So anytime a, a player is injured and they're out, then people understand they were hurt, they're out. But when you have people like Randall Cobb who play injured or Russell Wilson, they play injured and then they fight through that. But then the perception of them changes to incorporate in at least a little bit of their performance as they were injured. And so and to a certain extent, you have to always incorporate that kind of thing in because how many NFL players are playing with no injury at all or no limitations at all because of what's happened during the football season. But when you have guys who are playing with fairly serious injuries and their production goes down, then it's very difficult as a human being to not then have that change how you see them. And certainly Russell Wilson could get injured again at any time. But if he's back to full strength, you're likely to see an offense from the Seahawks this year that is completely different from what we looked at last season. Based on everything you're saying, the weaponry that Russell Wilson has supporting him, I think this could be the season. We talked about it last year. We talked about it the year before. We've wanted it for many years. This could be Russell Wilson's unlocking season where he becomes the number one quarterback in fantasy football. This could be 
Russell Wilson's unlocking season where he becomes the number one quarterback in fantasy football? It's certainly possible. I expect gigantic seasons from Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady. And then I expect the normal season from Drew Brees. And so to get ahead of those three guys, you have to do something pretty special. But certainly the circumstances are in place to accomplish that. He's capable and they lost another offensive lineman. So they had to sign another offensive lineman off the street. And they're they're rotating backs through trying to find someone that can withstand the early down punishment, maybe. I mean, we are years removed from the Marshawn Lynch days in Seattle, man. I think it's going to be a pass-heavy attack. It's very possible. (laughs) If it's a pass-heavy attack and Russell Wilson's healthy with these weapons. (laughs) Right, right. Funnel targets to Baldwin and Richardson and Graham and Procise in the passing game. That's my ideal scenario, but I don't know what's going to happen, man. Luckily, only Baldwin's expensive. Supporting Procise is, it's bad. I mean, you'd think the third running back drafted last season would have more public support and would be getting more first-team reps. So it sucks, right? It sucks. Eddie Lacy can't be done and washed at age 26. I mean, really? He was very elusive as a fat man. Right, so when you're evading a tackle five yards across the line of scrimmage and it's one guy right. you know, that's going to be a lot sworn. easier than if you're facing two guys in your own backfield you know you're not going to evade either of them if you have a bad offensive line rolling out these grinders is is such a misallocation of resources gonna take a look in the mirror and say what kind of team are we are we the patriots and we can deploy a legarrette blunt and not be too damaged by it or are we Seattle with one of the worst run-blocking units and rolling out a Rawls and a Lacey is really, really suboptimal on any given down and distance, pretty much. And that's where I keep saying is sometimes it happens naturally throughout the course of a season is your hand is forced a little bit as an offensive coordinator, and then all of a sudden that's where you start to see C.J. Procise's snaps start really climbing. It was a real race to see if the running back would take the handoff before the defensive lineman made the tackle at the mesh point. Oh, you yes, know, so. at the mesh point. Right, exactly. Yeah, it was, it was embarrassing. I remember that. When you see things, whether it's a movie or hear a song or you watch a football player, you immediately form uh, an instant evaluation that is very difficult to get away from later based on any information that that comes subsequently. And so, you know, when I look at people like Eddie Lacy and Derrick Henry, who, um, you know, certainly all those Alabama guys, where everyone's like, these guys are awesome. Number one, the first thing I think inside is just, I think you're probably not right. Within the context of that Titans offense, if DeMarco Murray goes down, then it seems like Derrick Henry will put up an avalanche of points. At the same time, I'm not even convinced that he's any good. I mean, you watch Henry, he stumbles up to the line of scrimmage. He takes one step sideways to try and find a hole. He loses all of his momentum. His weight is mostly, it appears, in his upper body. When they hit him on his athletic but thin legs, he immediately goes down. And that's just play after play after play. That's Derrick Henry. Then he gets into the open and you've got this big guy rumbling and, and he rips off some big plays. 
if you were not in an offense where Marcus Mariota is going to set you up with, I mean, that offense with the receivers they're going to have, with the spread nature of it, with, you know, some of the run options for Mariota, it's perfect for Henry because all of the defenders are not going to be on him. But if you put him in an offense like what the Jaguars want to run, where you're going to try and make the running back do the work, I mean, there's no chance. This is sort of personal to me as a, a Kansas City native and Kansas City Chiefs fan, but probably the single worst press conference of all time was when they forced Dick Vermeil to retire and brought in Herm Edwards. And you're talking about a five-year run of one of the greatest offenses in yeah. NFL history. Yeah, the Priest-Holmes run. And you're talking about an offense that was maybe the greatest run offense in NFL history. Trent Green of all players, you know, like not even a great quarterback. Right. You got Trent Green. You you have all those elite offensive linemen. So when you have this offense that is one of the greatest of all time, you have a running game. that's one of the greatest of all time. And then your head coach comes in and says in his press conference, you know, what we're going to do is run the ball, right? What we're going to do is run the ball and that's going to help our defense. Like, what in the hell are you talking about? You already run the ball. What you're saying in this press conference is we're going to make our passing game crappy. We're going to score fewer points. And we think that somehow being far worse on offense is going to make our defense better. Yeah, we think bad's the new good. So welcome to Kansas City. (laughs) Just let's return all the season tickets you have. Sucks, man. I never understand the teams that go out and say we're going to be really vanilla in the preseason. Look, why don't you go out and run plays that are in your playbook, but are plays you're less likely to run in the games? Wouldn't you prefer the other teams to see some of your offense and prepare for some of the stuff you're less likely to do than like go back to last year's stuff and prepare for your actual plays? The amount of time that they need to prepare just their own team versus watching opposing team film, I mean, they're almost like the CIA in that they're intentionally inefficient because they're, they're too secretive for their own good. The grinders, the grinders where you're like, I got to pick somebody that's going to be the primary guy. All those guys, yeah, Lacey included, they're all cells, man. It's hard to build a case for them, but at least I took Eric Decker before Corey Davis and and got Christopher Harris upset. (laughs) I I saw that you had had pointed that out. He didn't care for that? No, he talked about it on his show and called me a knucklehead. And then he called me a loudmouth idiot in in a tweet. And I was like, bro, I just was pointing this out. Now you're mad and you're throwing like personal attacks. This is war. Yeah, I don't think that he necessarily wants to get into it with somebody who has more the pulse of the engaged fantasy community. I mean, there are so many talented people in the community. And if you aren't familiar with what they're doing, then you're just not going to be prepared for there's just a lot of information that's great information that's actionable information that you won't have so like with mike evans i was higher on mike evans before but there's just been a lot of work done on mike evans like by rich and other people where it's just like let's be careful here i was pretty down on him and then the more i look at that offense i just think that if the offense works it has to work through him and the question i always had with calvin johnson you know, he was always my first pick on every single team. Mm. And, and and so, I mean, I watch all the games, but I would watch those games really closely. And 
I don't think this is anything controversial, but I do think there's this this at least mild uh, tension or interplay between volume and efficiency, and the way that a defense approaches someone, especially a superstar, if they don't have to contend with anyone else. So the argument that if there are no other receivers to to draw targets, then you're going to have this huge target share, and as a result, you have this uncapped upside. You have this incredible ceiling. Well. I, mean, I think that only works to an extent because even with someone like Calvin Johnson, you are going to see the efficiency numbers drop mm-hmm. when you're triple teamed, when they're the only thing they care about is taking you out of the play. And you can keep throwing at those guys, but it's just, it's so difficult to make anything out of it. And yeah, I think we could see Mike Evans bounce back. We're not yeah, bounce efficiency back. Efficiency wise, okay. absolutely. Because Deshaun Jackson's the guy. There's been a guy this decade who helps the guys around him and doesn't necessarily command huge target shares, so he's like the best of both worlds. He's not going to eat away a big target share from you, but he's going to take that safety off your back. That's huge. Julio yeah, the, Jones' the is upside is, is 24 fantasy points a game if they can't run the ball for whatever reason this year. I mean, it'd be crazy cool if that happened. Yeah, A.J. Green's another interesting one where he's just someone I've never really been fully on board with and i realized that his point totals when he's healthy in spurts are pretty high but i mean i think it's easy to to dismiss the john ross selection but they're starting to get to the point where they just really do have too many mouths i think that the i think that the way to play that is actually is through andy dalton even with all the problems that andy dalton has put it this way in 10 games aj green was top 20 in completed air yards. That's crazy. He's one of those guys, too, where the people that I think in, in some ways are the most interesting are not the ones who are amazing at catching the ball or awful at catching the ball, but the guys who are both, like A.J. Green, where there is no pass he can't catch and there is no underneath target that he won't occasionally drop. You know, let's say you're deciding between him and Evans, that he is aesthetically pleasing. It's like watching a ballerina. I just think all the drafts so desperately need third round reversal because, I mean, you've essentially got five guys who, I mean, those players are worth a full round more than anybody else. Let's put Melvin Gordon in there. The top six guys are Gordon. Odell being hurt matters. I don't want guys getting hurt right now. That's not good. No way I'm taking a guy where we're having this conversation a year from now where we're talking about how he played hurt last year. Excited to be on. You're doing pretty amazing stuff. It's It's been cool to watch how, how your site and, and your pod and all those things are developing. Thanks, man. Yeah, we're, we're grinding along, just telling people to shove it. They complain. <laughs> <laughs> not, being, not being customer service friendly, seeing how that goes, and it's been fine. I'm sorry, Sean. I'm sorry. Do you still think I'm smart? <laughs> If it moves the needle for me, then that's the show I want to do. I'm not just going to do a show just to do a show and go through the rankings. I mean, get the hell out of here. If you don't know who to draft by now, I'm sorry. I can't help you. Well, I think the key is just you can do your show, but then on top of that, you need to do you know four or five two-hour football shows a week. I mean, that's what you've got the people ready for now. Plenty of fantasy football live for people that just want to wander over for a, a week or two and listen to some fantasy football content. That's never going to be me. You know we do shows in January, February, March. Like, we've been at this all year. We haven't missed a week. 
we're not going to ramp it up now to try to get a couple more mainstream people. That's not it, man. Sorry. It sounds to me like you're just not working hard enough. And I'm not doing like mainstream content for Yahoo or anything. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It's not like I'm not doing that either. Jesus Christ. <laughs> we talk a lot about how the, you know, just pick players mentality is is kind of silly for a variety of reasons. But in the end, it does come back to players. I mean, fantasy football is fun because you've got these guys and, you know, you've got actual players on your team, you're rooting for them. And so, so I understand all that too, because, you know, I'm just like everybody else where, you know, when the games start, I'm watching all of them, I'm rooting for my guys. <laughs> so For me, August is a weird month. I'm a little bit grumpy in August, put it that way. Give me March all day. Give me just Combine and Dynasty people. Those are my people. If you're paying attention to the Combine and you're in Dynasty Leagues, you're someone I, I can identify with. You know, if you have 10 to 15 rookie drafts, you're doing. Yes, 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 that, yes, those, those are my people. So I know who my people are, and when someone that's not one of those people wanders over, and complains that we're not talking enough football, then I'm like, excuse me. I have to go now. Bye-bye. There's a little unsubscribe button over there. There's a little back button over there. We'll see you later. The fantasy drones wake up. Who's this guy? Alvin Kamara. Let me learn more about him. Let me go to (laughs) playerprofiler.com. It's about time. I had to do the token zero RB question course hope, hope that was okay yeah it's like asking quentin tarantino about pulp fiction he's like okay all right yeah okay what's in the briefcase okay have i not done enough else since pulp fiction really the briefcase really that's where you're going with this really you're starting the interview with what's in the briefcase okay okay fine i did a movie about slavery that's kind of relevant right now i did a movie about nazis that's kind of relevant right now, but sure, let's talk about what's in the briefcase. Go ahead. Go ahead with your questions, right? <laughs> right? At least we don't have uh, Shane up in the cottage there in the snow trying to, to kill Kurt Russell. That whole scene from Kill Bill 1 or 2, I don't remember which one, of her exhuming herself and then killing a really, really, really dangerous guy that was fucking awesome. So Quentin Tarantino is incredible. Imagine if they had a running back with the between the tackles capability of LeGarrette Blunt, who is also an exceptional receiver. Imagine that. Just imagine. Just imagine that. Imagine. Imagine. Little Rex Burkhead, you're saying the thing I wanted to say. I love it when that happens. Yes, keep talking. Right, right, right. Right, right. The Giants have nobody. My whole body is starting to quiver. Continue. Thank you, Adam Thielen, for helping me not look incompetent. Signed, Sam Bradford. Procise too! I almost almost didn't forget I had Procise in there! Holy shit! Do you still think I'm smart?